Hi, uh, very good, warm, uh, very warm welcome to uh, the audience for out there for tonight's event. Uh, welcome to the um, LSE's virtual uh, talk by Lionel Barber, the former editor of the Financial Times. Um, I should explain who I am. My name's Charlie Beckett. I'm a professor in the Department of Media and Communications that's hosting uh, the event tonight. I'm a former journalist and I also run uh, Polis, which is the LSE's international uh, journalism think tank. Uh, we're really pleased that Lionel has been able to join us tonight. He's actually talking um, to us from America, where he's, he's visiting in Idaho. Um, uh, Lionel, of course, is the former editor uh, of the Financial Times, and he's the author of a book called The Powerful and the Damned, which has just come out in paperback. And uh, that's his diary of the tumultuous years between 2005 and 2019. And of course, things haven't really got any calmer since then. The book is um, a very readable account of uh, that period. Uh, it gives a kind of window on world affairs from someone who had a, a front row seat as leader of one of the world's most influential uh, newsrooms. But uh, Lionel was quite a different kind of editor. Uh, he, he wasn't somebody who got stuck in the editor's office. He spent a lot of time uh, visiting uh, the key countries and talking to some of the most important uh, figures uh, of that period, people from politics, business, finance, uh, royals, and uh, even journalists. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Lionel was taking the FT through a period of uh, real reinvention. There was the change of ownership, of course, uh, but perhaps even more important was this digital transformation from a pink newspaper uh, to a global online media brand. Uh, and under his uh, visionary leadership, the FT became a pioneer of new formats uh, like uh, data journalism, for example, uh, and also one of the most uh, successful uh, online subscription uh, news organisations. So there's lots that I'd like to talk uh, with Lionel about, and I'm sure you have questions for him. Please uh, submit those in the uh, question and answer box. Um, but first, we're going to hear from Lionel for a, a bit, who's going to give us a sort of flavour of this rather fabulous uh, book that he's uh, just written. So uh, over to you, Lionel Barber. Thank you very much. Thank you, Charlie. Uh it's great to be part of this event from Sun Valley, Idaho, uh, where I'm attending, guess what, a media conference. Um, I held probably one of the best um, jobs in journalism in the world for 14 years. Uh, and I thought because of that privileged position, it would be worth trying to write um, a memoir, um, but also a book that gave a sense of turbulent times, um, the extraordinary events between 2005 and 2020 when I was the editor. And that includes, you know, the most serious financial crisis in two generations, the global financial crisis, uh, the political legacy of that crisis, the rise of populism, Brexit, the election of uh, Donald Trump, and also the, the technological revolution, the digital revolution, which we're still experiencing and which had a profound effect on all forms of journalism, but particularly the printed form. So I am trying to do several things at once with this book. And I chose the diary form 
Um, not because I kept a daily diary every day. I was often too exhausted. Uh, but I did write up all my interesting encounters with, as Charlie was saying, I met a lot of powerful people. Um, and I, I kept a, a very studious note of those, th- those, those conversations. Um, and I wanted to therefore give people a sense of how power has worked, um, how power changed uh, with the rise of populism, the attacks on representative government, fragmentation in media, social media, the rise of social media, all of that is sort of contained in this, in this, in this book. I think one other point before I give you a, a few, um, I thought I'd give you a bit of a taste by reading some passages. Um, this is also a story about managing in very tough times. Uh, I enjoyed managing most of the time. I was managing 578 or so brilliant anarchists, better known as journalists. Um, the Financial Times changed profoundly uh, in the years that I was in charge. Um, we went digital, as, as Charlie was saying, but we also changed the whole, the, the, the way the newsroom worked. Uh, we invented new jobs. And we also changed, frankly, the balance of power in the Financial Times in terms of gender and, uh, to a degree, embraced diversity, particularly in the last two or three years, or maybe a bit longer than that, actually. Um, of course, we made some mistakes. Uh, we can talk about that. Charlie's probably going to ask me about why we got Brexit wrong and why we missed it. I'll leave that to that question later. But overall, I think this book... Um, Here's the American version. Um, it is supposed to be a quick, fast read, which will give you some insights about an incredibly interesting and turbulent period um, in where the world was changed upside down. And that was even before COVID. I think I got out in time, by the way, Charlie. Anyway, here are a few extracts. I was appointed, uh, to my surprise, in 2005. I didn't plan to be the editor, but when I got the nod or the call, I was in New York and I was kind of ready. I was 50. I'd I'd been a long time foreign correspondent. And so I set to task, I set some strategic direction. So we had to return to the gold standard, um, tighten things up in the newsroom and pick some talent. And then within about 48 hours, I get the call from Downing Street. Would you like to meet Tony Blair? Well, I said, I'm a bit busy actually. But uh, anyway, here we were a few weeks later, Wednesday, 16th of November. My first meeting with Tony Blair in Downing Street. I've been doing some background reading on the Blair years, thanks to a colleague lending me a copy of The Insider, the private diaries of Piers Morgan, the roguish ex-editor of the Daily Mirror and News of the World. Piers appears to have uh, enjoyed considerable sofa time with TB, a mildly incestuous relationship which later soured over the Iraq war. I'd resolved to keep my distance from the government, but Downing Street called, seeking a meeting within days of my appointment. Now I'm sitting opposite Blair, flanked by his bald, middle-aged PR flat catcher, Dave Hill. LB, thank you for seeing me, Prime Minister. TB, call me Tony. LB, that's okay, Prime Minister. TB, persistent. Call me Tony, I mean... We do know each other. Well, actually, I'd only met 
I remind the Prime Minister we've only met once before in the summer of 1998 at the UK Ambassador's residence in Brussels. Blair looks a tad deflated. At the end, Blair turns to the FT. How much do I intend to change things? My first reaction, none of your goddamn business. My second response, play for time. I tell him the FT is a consensual culture. Any new editor needs to tread carefully. In that case, says the architect of New Labour and three-time general election winner, you won't get anything done. Well, Blair was dead right on invading Iraq. Sorry, dead wrong on invading Iraq. But on the FT and change, he's dead right. To Silicon Valley, 31st of October. Here's my secret confession. I'm old media, desperate to be new media. For a guy who grew up in print, this is not just a technological challenge. It requires a change of mindset, a willingness to embrace collaboration, disruption, participation, and open source information like Wikipedia. This feels liberating, but also threatening. What better place to learn how best to adapt than Silicon Valley, birthplace of the digital revolution? Marissa Mayer, Google's 20th employee and a staff, a star software engineer who developed its world-beating search engine, opens the presentations. She's a tall 32-year-old blonde who speaks in slogans like launch early and often and innovation, not perfection. The world comes down to users, users, users. She displays the confidence of a multimillionaire and the certainty of someone who's cracked the code. But there's also a childlike naivety summed up by her casual assertion that data is apolitical. Eric Schmidt, Google's hard-nosed CEO, proffers the same sound bites and the odd jarring note. In the middle of his talk about Google's ambition to organize the world's information, in front of an audience of 100 publishing executives, Schmidt muses about the oddness of copyright law. Duh. Couple more. Wednesday, 5th of November. This is 2014. Vladimir Yakunin, the former KGB agent who runs Russian railways, arrives with a retinue of bodyguards. Several have sausage fingers and no visible sign of a neck. I'm suitably impressed. But I do insist that only one aide accompanies Yakunin in my office. Yakunin has been on a US sanctions list since Russia annexed Crimea. He's charming, polite, and uninformative. My sense is that this is a reconnaissance mission. Yakunin knows Putin well. They're said to own neighboring dachas on the Karelian Isthmus. We agreed to keep in touch in London or in Moscow. Yakunin proved a useful source in the coming five years, more market color than scoop provider. He invariably came with a thoughtful gift, such as a vividly illustrated book on Russian art, culture, or history. His conversation was occasionally less highbrow. He once asked, why is it, Lionel, that all the women in London look like men? Uh, apologies for the slight. Anyway, last one. I've been cultivating, this is Friday, 20th of March, 2015. I've been cultivating Linton Crosby for months, 
knowing his first choice to run Cameron's re-election campaign. The silver-haired, razor-blade-chewing South Australian helped John Howard's centre-right party to win four straight elections down under. His contempt for journalists has transferred effortlessly from Adelaide to London. We meet at the Great Gallery restaurant at the RAC Club in Pall Mall, which must rank as the best furbished London club with a full-sized marble swimming pool and Turkish baths. Crosby begins by telling me that voters are fucked off. All the old assumptions about working hard and keeping a job are gone. Immigration is a serious problem. Conservatives have to hammer home a single message. Trust us with the economy. Labour are way too risky and incompetent. Execution is the challenge. This means a targeted ground campaign in multiple constituencies. I asked Crosby how he proposes to deal with UKIP and the coming man, Nigel Farage, who's standing in South Thanet. Will the Tories be targeting his seat? Crosby looks incredulous. If you want to win the Vietnam War, you don't just bomb the paddy fields, you kill Ho Chi Minh. There we are. Charlie, I think you should probably stop me from reading any more promotions. It's great. <laughs> I love how you love your own book. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a great book. And what, what fascinated me as well is the extraordinary range of the people that you, you talk to. And um, I was just read, reading, I don't know if you're familiar with the Janet Malcolm book, you know, The Journalist and the Murderer, which is a book about, you know, the, 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 in a sense, the sort of the Faustian pact that a journalist has to make to yeah. secure an interview with very powerful people and also people who may be, how can I put it, um, not very nice. Um, people, I mean, for example, Prince Andrew doesn't come out of your book particularly well. And you also interviewed Donald Trump, who I think everyone would agree is a somewhat controversial figure. And I wondered how you managed, how you deal with that and, you know, how you sort of keep your journalistic objectivity intact, or perhaps you don't. Mm. Well, you've identified an essential tension um, between kind of access and we could call it objectivity, but just the ability to write independently and so that you're not in effect compromised by that access and I would say probably the dilemma was more even more acute for me because I was the editor I mean I I was in charge of all the coverage I mean the buck stopped with me so playing this editor reporter role did have some complications and tensions and 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 one way I got around it was anything that I wrote was always given I insisted that other pair of eyes, at least two pair of eyes, would read it and they could do what they like with it. I I never interfered with my own work. But the more interesting, perhaps, question is, is just, you know, access and whether you're compromised. I, I think you never do deals ahead of the conversation about what's off limits. You can't do that if you that really is a devil's Faustian pact. Um. The second is, um, you know, y- you have to be able to insert context into the interview. You're not just a f- cipher, you're a filter as well. And both sides need to understand that. I think the other uh, dilemma, and you may want to go on to talk about this, is obviously in, as the 
political environment, the journalistic media environment has become so polarized that it's become even harder whether you're interviewing him, uh, somebody or not. Just writing about subjects, people expect you to take a stand. And if you try and report both sides, you know, this is treated like an act of moral cowardice. Um, I wrote about this earlier this year for, in an essay um, for, on the persuasion, for persuasion and on the, on the platform, um, which I've tried to do the case for both sides. Mm-hmm. And, and I referred specifically to the Trump interview. Whenever you can. Um, just to sort of follow up on that, there's an interesting question here from one of, uh, from the audience, from Malcolm McAdam. And it's kind of relevant to this. That he, he says, you know, the FT gained, uh, you know, under your leadership and continues to have a fearless, a reputation for fearless investigative reporting, um, you know, with several major exposés. And he's asking, did you feel that the FT was waging a lonely battle in exposing corporate and financial wrongdoing? And also, did you ever kill stories under legal pressure and then regret it? You know, do you think there is this a, a wider culture of collusion and silence now? Uh, and if so, you know, what can be done to change it? You're very forthright in your diary, at least where you tell people to get stuffed, you know, uh, and you resist pressure. Mm. But um, did, it, did it ever result in you um, losing out? The honest answer is no. Um, because, you know, I, I believe passionately in investigative journalism. Um, I don't think we were, oh, by the way, let, let's just unpack this and take it step by step. So first of all, I, I honestly don't think that the FT was on its own. Um, I think that the Guardian under Alan and later Kath Viner, Alan Rusbridger obviously did amazing investigative reporting. Maybe not quite so much on the corporate side, but they did the tax uh, expose about tax evasion on the Panama Papers. I think the Times has done some amazing investigative journalism. Um, on grooming, for example, in the north of England, Rotherham and stuff. And they've generally done stuff. What we tried to do um, was um, really focus on corporate um, investigative journalism, stories which related to business. And, you know, you have to remember, and I write about this in the book, that I inherited a terrible libel action where we frankly had screwed up. And this, I had to sort this out within the first three months of my editorship. And I looked at it and I just thought it was shoddy. And my colleagues were saying, we've got to fight it. And I said, you know what? We screwed up. So we're going to have to pay. And we paid up. We ended up paying four million pounds. I mean, a lot of it was covered for insurance. So we were immediately on the back foot and it took years to actually, you know, get confident, get the procedures in place. And then I created an investigative unit after about six years. Now, towards the end, I think we did amazing work. I mean, the Enron story, sorry, the Wirecard story, everybody knows about. Um, it began, I was hands-on throughout on this. Um, and we did Martin Sorrell, the investigation on why he had to resign. Uh, and they've done brilliant work on Greensill and stuff. And so I think now it really is in the DNA. Now, last point, did I... Did I ever kill a story? Um, there was one story which I just felt we didn't have it. And, you know, the risk would have been very serious 
about being sued. But honestly, and I told the reporter and I talked through it, I, this person I worked with, I, I, we spent two and a half years on it and it just wasn't there. And I didn't have any problems about that, taking that decision. So I never, um, I never pulled the, the, um, pulled a story that I later regret, regretted not publishing. I pulled stories that I, that I said and the editor's colleagues backed me that, you know, I said, it's not there. We're not there. Charlie, you've gone mute. Yeah, sorry. yeah that, that's always a point to admit that. And that's, you know, that, that's impressive. On the other side of the journalism piece, though, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, you know, you, you and all the other news organisations in the world, really, have been going through this kind of transformation in, um, you know, because of the new technology and new platforms and so on, and the, you know, the business model crisis, if you like. And uh, I remember you came to the LSE in 2015 and you set out this vision of a digital first FT. I'm very interested to, um, we've got a number of questions coming in on this. Um, first of all, there's one from Tom Bunting who says, you know, how did you manage to implement those changes in such a thoroughgoing way when the FT is so kind of, in a sense, sprawling geographically and it's, it's a big ship to, uh, to change course? And the other one is, is um, what impact do you think it will make? So Wesley Defoco says, you know, what would be the impact of paywalls, for example? This idea perhaps that, you know, only people who can afford to pay for quality journalism are going to get it. So how did you do it? And what do you think the impact is going to be? Um, well, both of those questions um, point to the same fundamental insight that I had and obviously was shared by members of the board, that the FT was a unique product, a premium brand with a global presence. And my job was to make it even more global because that's where the new readers were. And it was also kind of gave the sense of mission for the, for the paper. We'd already, we'd, we'd often written about, you know, we had a lot of foreign correspondence, but, you know, in difficult times, the temptation would be to say, let's shut down bureaus to save money. In fact, the number of foreign correspondents increased um, while I was editor, and I saw this as a crucial competitive advantage. In terms of the way we transformed um, Digital First, I mean, look, it was an evolution, not a revolution. I mean, some papers, you know, frankly went mal and, and you know, wrecked the place and then built up from scratch. I thought that was too dangerous. And frankly, the stories, particularly the global financial crisis was such that we just couldn't afford to do that. So we might have been a bit slow on the development of data journalism, uh, on image, uh, moving image, video. We could have been maybe a bit faster there. But it needed, um, the way we did it was I, essentially, I, 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 I would write two memos a year and I would draw in the, you know, the senior team, and I would lay out what we were going to do and call it a strategy. And over the years, I got better at it. And the team didn't, there was, you know, you kept, the team did change at the top, but there were several people who were brilliant journalists. I mean, I'll mention Robert Shrimsey because he took over ahead of digital in 2010 and was there till the end of my time. Um, you know, the, the, so you had a certain continuity, but also evolution. And you, 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 you are not, you didn't shy away from saying that 
this was going to be difficult, but at least the army knew there was a sense of direction. Um, and look, the, the, the numbers started to reflect that. And we, 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 we did not, um, in the editorial, come up with the idea of building up the business subscription side. Um, that was done by a member of the board who was utterly brilliant, conceiving this notion of selling packages of subscriptions to business and then renewing. And that was one of the reasons these, the subscriptions kept going up. So it was clear we were succeeding. Um, now, the question about access and, and, and sort of re reach, are you going to c discriminate against people who can't afford it? Look, the FT, uh, we don't claim to have um, a silver bullet for everybody else, but we were a premium brand. And I think we could, we, we could make the case based on the quality of and excellence of our journalism that people would pay for it. I mean, one way of putting it was to say, it's a slightly expensive large cafe latte per day. Um, um, but I, I think others were a bit slow, frankly, to, to see that the subscription model was a way to go. That's really interesting. Another thing that occurs to me is that in that period, I mean, the, the, the FTT has become even more a kind of global brand. Obviously, your ownership is now, you know, mm. means you're looking east, as it were. If from the UK anyway. And, um, you know, obviously the way that globalisation continues apace um, and you're trying to reach a, an audience, a, ma a much more widespread audience. I wonder, there's an interesting question here from uh, um, Neil Network who's asked, you know, how do you compare UK and US journalism um, and also just kind of UK and other journalisms? And I wondered, do you think the FT's kind of journalistic identity has changed because you are trying to, you know, appeal to those other markets? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I sound like the White House, but it is a great question. It's very important. Um, but I would just perhaps, just a slight caution. Um, you said that globalization continues apace. I would actually say it's, in areas, gone in reverse. And sure. COVID's helped that, you know, new nationalism, China, U.S., China, you know, um, discriminating against Chinese companies that are listing in America. I mean, there are certain things that are changing in this puzzle. In other areas, yes, globalization is, is, is continuing. But, um, first of all, we realized that we needed to have more Chinese people, Chinese citizens, um, reporting from China. I mean, the old days when you could send correspondents, frankly, to places and they could, you know, read the local news service, talk to the diplomats. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect, but, you know, I, I was incredible. I'm a linguist myself. I speak, you know, French and German fluently. They were, that was incredibly helpful. But, you know, you need people to have languages and you need to have nationals in those offices to give you a better perspective. And similarly, if you're going to be truly global, you want people from different um, backgrounds in the key positions. So, you know, in my time, the chief leader writer, that's the person you work most closely with, was for a time an American who wrote the editorials. Um, the opinion editor was an American, also previously company, Brooke Masters. She was fantastic. The current uh, head of America 
is Peter Spiegel. He was an American. He is American. Um, and in Asia, Jamil Andalini, you know, he's a New Zealander, uh, Italian background, New Zealander background, um, but married to Chinese. I mean, you've got some extraordinary mixtures of people that I think together f- just blow out the water, this notion that, you know, the FT is some kind of Oxbridge male uh, institution. It isn't. I did go for my sins. You know, I got in through a small back door into Oxford. But um, if you look at the senior team, Rula Khalaf, now the editor, my deputy editor and former foreign editor, she was born in Lebanon. Um, you know, we hired Janine Gibson from the Gu- Guardian and BuzzFeed. Uh, she's pretty well in charge. Not, you know, she's very powerful in the whole digital operation of the FT. So we really did change things and extend things. And we were much stronger as a result. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so following up on, the, if you like, the sort of Asian perspective, um, you talk about this in the book. Um, and this isn't just about the journalism. I'm interested in your views more generally about China. You know, do you think... Firstly, there's a question from Hanul Cho, who's asking about whether, you know, the power of Chinese uh, money as much as, you know, as well as their government, whether you think that is going to affect uh, Western media coverage. Um, uh, you're just also, breaking up a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. Whether, whether it's going to have an impact, uh, perhaps even intimidate um, Western journalists uh, and more generally where you think, you know, are we now abandoning hope of uh, China taking any kind of more, you know, liberal turn? No, there's no chance at all in the short term of China taking a more liberal turn. It would probably go the other way with under the present leadership. Um, she is a different kind of leader. He's not, he's abolished this, uh, the uh, limited two terms um, and He's the most powerful leader since Mao. And there's even Maoist sort of characteristics plus nationalism. So no chance of a liberal turn. Uh, Hong Kong has been throttled. Um, but having said that, and I, I speak guardedly here because our, we have a Chinese language, when I say we, now the FT has a Chinese language service. Um, and, uh, we have an important presence there and they've not discriminated against us in the same way that um, they did American publications. So we've not been caught in the FT has not been caught in that crossfire, but what's happened in Hong Kong is a real wake up and a warning. I saw it when I was editor, we, 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 you know, you, you, and, and the Chinese in general, I mean, all people put pressure on you. The, the way the Chinese, it's a slow squeeze um, uh, and they don't stop. And then unless you push back occasionally, they'll just carry on and carry on. And of course, when we were taken over by the Japanese, by Nikkei, the Chinese immediately just used this as leverage by saying, of course, you're not, you're not a friend of China anymore. You're not, you know, you're, 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 you can't possibly be objective. And you, of course, how is your... How are your Japanese owners? And they would really play on this. But at the same time, you know, I got access, you know, to have regular conversations with them, or I'd see on a reasonably regular basis, the Chinese ambassador. And when I was in China, you know, I met Lu He, 
Um, I met Wang Chisan, not in China, but in London. And so you know, things, things went on. So you, you, it's a real balancing act is the answer. But, but, but there's definitely been a change in China. It's become more illiberal and they will put more, much, much more pressure on media organizations. Keeping to this sort of grand historical sweep, um, the, the period you've chosen, you know, 2005 to 19, um, I can think of at least, you know, obviously there's the 2008 financial crisis. And from British perspective, there's obviously the referendum five years ago, perhaps an American would cite the election of Donald Trump, where there were huge things that happened uh, that were in a sense unexpected and then were transformational. Uh, I just wonder how you feel. I mean, now you've had that chance to go back over that period, whether you um, did do feel um, that, that, you know, why didn't we see it coming better? Or perhaps you did feel you did see it coming. And I just wonder how, how truly transformational you think these things are, or whether we're just getting kind of overexcited yeah. about, you know, we're losing our historical perspective here. Well, on the global financial crisis, I'd give us pretty high marks. I mean, I do give credit to Gillian Tett, who I think did an amazing job writing about um, rising risk in the capital markets. I think Martin Wolf saw what was happening. And, you know, I think we, we did well on that. And, you know, we were recognized amongst our peers. Um, I'm not saying we knew exactly when Lehman would go down, but, you know, by... March 2008, and I talk about this in the book, going to Wall Street and reading the runes uh, on Wall Street, seeing all the heads of the banks from Goldman Sachs, Morden Stanley, Dick Fould at Lehman Brothers, who almost um, got leapt out of his chair and punched me on the nose when I asked him why he was paying himself $179 million. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I think we did... I think we did a good job there, actually. And, you know, given that the Queen asked the government why they missed it, I think we did a better job. We may not have connected all the dots. That's true. But we, we did a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, on Brexit, I think we did, we did not do a good, such a good job. Um, some colleagues of mine have said that I've been too hard on myself and, and maybe, you know, others. But I'm afraid that we looked at this too much in terms of our own belief in the power of rational decision making. And we thought that economics trumped everything. And we were used a bit by Osborne with his fear project fear campaign, not as much as the Daily Mail claimed. But we didn't pick up sentiment outside metropolitan uh, London and you know, I, I, I give Rula um, credit because she got had the idea of bringing foreign correspondents back to go to outside, you know, up into Dorset or down into Dorset, Cornwall, up in the northwest. And all these foreign correspondents came back and said, you know what, it, it's like leave. And we just didn't pick up the signal in all the noise. And I did feel bad about that. And... You know, I, I think it was, I think it was a miss and we made corrections in terms of the way we constructed our network of reporting. And I, I was, uh, I made some changes as a result. I think then we did a very good job in pointing out the economic risks in Brexit. 
And I do lastly think that it is historic because it's ruptured a 50-year-old trading and political relationship with our closest neighbours. And I think we're all diminished by it. I think it was a mistake. I think it was an act of self-harm. But it was historical. I think lastly, the, the global financial crisis is definitely a big thing. It was, it, it's had a big political effect um, in terms of rising, uh, you know, anti-capitalism, um, anti-globalization and populism. Your point about the, the um, you know, the metropolitan perspective is really interesting because I had a similar experience where on the night of the referendum vote, the LSE was hosting a big kind of, um, you know, conference, as it were, or coverage, and they invited loads of international correspondents to come to the LSE. And I was speaking to them, and I was really surprised how many of them thought that Brexit was going to happen, because they were kind of unencumbered. In fact, they were almost prejudiced the other way. They assumed that the Brits were very Eurosceptic, and they had been going around the UK um, without the kind of metropolitan blinkers, if you like. And they thought that, you know, that um, the Brexit vote could happen. It was, uh, it was really interesting. There's an interesting question going back to the financial crisis um, from Ben Popatlau. Sorry, Ben. Um, and he's asking that you obviously spoke to many bankers, you know, before 2008 and afterwards, obviously. He's asking, did you notice a change in their attitudes and their ego, if they like? Um, or did when you sp- spoke to people after 2008, did you just think, I'm quoting Ben here, quote, shit, they're going to cause a repeat of 2008 again one day? No, I, I didn't think that. They were un- un- amazingly unrepentant. You know, they, they, they just thought, well, it just got, it was a bit of bad luck, really, because... You know, and it was the central bank's fault for putting too much money in credit. Uh, they didn't tighten early enough or they, they tightened too quickly. Uh, there were all sorts of excuses. Um, I mean, the best one was, well, it was the, the faulty regulation, which encouraged, you know, perverse incentives to take risk. And it was a bit like the image was, you know, we were look, we were just like school children seven-year-olds playing football in front of the goal where everybody crowds around the ball because that's where the, you know, the incentives were. So I, I, that, that just struck me as, the, you know, the arrogance was occasionally just breathtaking. Um, and they still don't accept that they did anything wrong, in, largely. Uh, that was particularly true of America. It was kind of true of, um, uh, a little less true of some of the British bankers. Um, did I think... I didn't think they're going to do it straight away again because um, the regulations changed and you know, they, they were forced to take, uh, to put in higher capital buffers and also to cut down their proprietary trading. So if you like, risk moved elsewhere. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we've got get, getting quite a few questions around this idea of um, so-called fake news. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hannah McCausland, for example, asks, you know, from your experience and in your view, has the quality press won over the public in the fake news row? You know, how does a, an editor best counteract accusations of fake news and maintain public credibility in a brand? And I think that bit's interesting, isn't it? That when people don't like the FT's journalism, they'll just say, oh, it's, it's fake news. It's just bias. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, it's terrible. It, it's terrible the way um, everybody has just adopted Trumpian language. This was Trump's um, dismissive epithet uh, about everything. It's just fake news. And he, meanwhile, he'd be telling whoppers by the by the hour. Um, so I, I, I gave a um, slight sub-promotion here, but I gave a lecture, I think it was three years ago at Oxford, um, which was entitled Fake News in the Post-Truth Age. And I tried to deconstruct what fake news was. And of course, it can be used for a variety of things. It could be about reporting about rumours. It could be black official propaganda. It could be all sorts of things. The way to counteract it is to say facts matter. You know, we're in the facts business. This isn't information. Uh, sorry, this isn't comment. It's not opinion. It, these are the facts. And that's why the Wirecard story was so important. It actually showed that facts did matter. This company was corrupt. It's the biggest fraud in German post-war German history. Unbelievable story. And we exposed it. Facts matter. That's incredibly important for a brand. I think general, the second way of um, dealing with it is to say we don't, we, we rely on multiple sources for our reporting. We don't just talk to one side. We're interested in reporting on both sides and we're putting in context. And if you then, you know, pursue those values and some of the basic tenets of good reporting, then you can counter the fake news epithet. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of related to, to that question. Um, there's a question here from Josephine Burton. Is how do you, uh, do you have any sort of tips for making um, financial issues and the economy more accessible to more people? Obviously, the FT has a you know, pretty classy, educated audience in general. You know, they're quite sophisticated. But um, as you've just mentioned, you know, facts have gone out of fashion including financial facts. How do, you, how do you make that more accessible? Well, I do think that you, first of all, need to start with people. Um, I, I, I'm always fascinated by people in business and why they do it, why they take the risk, how they take the risk, how they manage, how they lead. These are really interesting questions. And you can tell stories around that through the people. The people are the vehicles for the story. The second thing is to think about um, the data and the facts, the story behind that. So you're not just, in effect, saying X company uh, made a profit of 17.9 million. Uh, these are the, the, the uh, extra charges on this. This was the revenue. You're telling something more than that. So we, we got out of the business of, of, of just reporting figures, me, you know, because that, that was available in many, many other outlets. So you had to tell the story behind those, the data. Um, I do think that, um, <laughs> I do actually think, I used to say this to colleagues, that just occasionally writing a positive story, can we, give, <laughs> can, can we have some sun in this newsroom, news morning conference? You know, I, I said, I, you know, you're depressing me. Is there not anything good happening out there? And if you do that, then people will just realize that they're getting a bit more of a nuanced picture and they might take, you know, you're not writing propaganda, but it's just something a bit positive. It could be strength in adversity or whatever. 
And, and to understand, lastly, the last big, big, big thing is how technology is changing business. This is amazing, the growth of fintech. You would think, for example, I mean, I'm just here in Sun Valley. One of the stories that I've come across, I'd never heard of this. You'd think of looking at Brazil, you'd think it's, it's just a total, complete disaster. You've got this populist leader who is a complete thug, um, he, he's probably, he's threatening like Trump not to respect the next election. He's got family that he's benefiting. The corruption is stinking. But in Brazil, this fintech is happening. There's a bank there. I won't mention it because it's not a promotion, but there's stuff happening, which is amazing in terms of what the way technology is changing the way you do business. And then perhaps just lastly, I've got it because I think she's so wonderful. Sarah O'Connor, the employment correspondent and columnist for the FT, she does amazing stuff about the darker end of the labor market and also how the gig economy and how technology is changing it. That's a must read. But if you read her, it's not difficult to read. Anybody could read it. Yeah. But it's was, really was, fascinating. I was about to... To, to, to quote, as it were, Sarah Connor as, a, as, as an example leading into the, the next question, because one of the things I, I've noticed is that over the last, say, five years, you've hired some very talented young journalists, you know, some of them with very little experience, actually. And there, there's some really fantastic writers and investigators and data journalists that you, you, you brought in. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, there's a question here from Fanola O'Connor, um, when you're thinking about your audience, do, do Gen Z, do they want something different from, you know, the FT, from financial and political reporting? You know, um, there's a couple of other questions around that, you know, sort of how you think of the audience and how it might change. Or do yeah. you think an FT reader is going to be an FT reader? It doesn't matter what age they are or what generation. No, it's definitely changing. I'm, just on Sarah. Uh, you know, she was a graduate trainee. I recognized that she was clearly very talented and we took her step by step. I encouraged her, you know, to do this and then maybe think about that. And then I said, do a column. She was a bit pressured, uh, you know, to do, you know, didn't want overly probably to be pressured, but she grew and she was helped, but she had all the talent and now she's amazing. So managing that talent um, is very important as well as recruiting, um, talent but the answer the answer to your question is look first of all i think gen z's got a shorter time um shorter attention span um and that that's just a fact in the di digital age so how you package the information and you talked about our data journalism you know we, we 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 had to make it a bit more accessible and and break it up that that that's very important because reading habits have changed I think the other thing, and I'm, my daughter is a journalist. She's at the New York Times. She's in the video area, um, but came out of data. That's the way journalism goes. There is a convergence between software and data uh, and, 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 and reporting. And they may be just a bit more interested in things that you, you and I, when we were reporting, were less interested in. So, you know, obviously the whole, um, uh, Black Lives Matter and all the consequences from that have affected how this generation, you know, what journalistic priorities there should be. 
how stories are covered, all of that is now up for debate. And while I might, you know, I, I would be, you've got to listen to this generation. You don't have to follow everything that they say, because, you know, if you've got 40 years, you've presumably done something right. But you've got to listen to it to bring them along. And journalism is always evolving. It's always evolving. Yeah, exactly. Very much so. We're, 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 we're in the last sort of uh, 10 minutes max. So I just want to crack through a couple of other perhaps kind of briefer questions that I think are quite intriguing. There's one here from, I'm going to mispronounce this name, Ogonev Woke Igure. Hope I got that right. He asked, he says, you said, um, as an editor, your job was a combination of being a writer, interviewer, manager, motivator, coach, and chef. Mm. <laughs> um, looking back, which one, which role was dominant or which was your, your favourite, you think? Um, when it worked, I was, uh, the other role that I had was, and this was a manager of a rock band. Right. Um, I mean, in other words, just making sure these very creative people were happy <laughs> And they were also playing the right tune and then making yeah. sure they didn't go off and form their own different rock band that was going to upset our one. So I think that was very, very important. And being the guardian of standards, that was really, really important that everybody understood what the standards were and setting the strategic direction. I'll take the rock band. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, next question is, um, is from Bruce Medeiros who asks, um, who are the damned? As in the David book, Cameron. Ah. Right. David Cameron, definitely damned. And that was before he got wrapped up with Greensill as a lobbyist. I mean, he made a terrible decision calling the referendum. He was uh, insouciant. He was, was a needless risk. Um, all he cared about was the unity of the Tory party. And he unleashed a load of demons. And, you know... I don't think he meant badly. I don't think he's an evil person, but he's a bit stupid. And um, so he's definitely a damned. I think many of the bankers during the financial crisis, they were the damned. And probably Theresa May had a bit the damned as well. Yeah, yeah. That's quite a list, isn't it? Yeah, bless them. Um, a question here from Thomas Cole, which is sort of a deceptively simple one, which is what was the most surprising interview that you did? as FT editor because you were we were talking earlier about how interviews are kind of very arranged these days aren't they and that it's it's a kind of negotiation and you have to try and scrape around to get some chink of original information or insight mm. um were there any way you know you, you thought you were, you know you were surprised how they opened up yeah I, I think interviewing Paul Kagami for three and a half hours in Rwanda was was surprising in that you know he this was a deeply problematic figure. I mean, you know, almost certainly responsible for killing killings. You know, he took over though a, a nation which had been just experienced genocide. Eight hundred thousand people, million people killed in eight weeks. Very problematic, uh, difficult figure. But he, you know, he really engaged with me in a way that I hadn't expected. Um, um, I think. Putin as well was a bit of a surprise that we managed to actually break through, cut through to get our story, that we didn't feel that we just got nothing out of him. I managed to, you know, just sit there and spoke to him in German initially. He responded in German. 
um, asked me where I'd learned my German. I said Oxford. And he said, what did you study at Oxford? And I said, modern history and German. He said, what is modern history? That surprised me. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. So I said, everything after 1989. <laughs> yeah. But that was, that, that, so the, the, you know, there, there are moments when you, you really have to think on your feet. Um, yeah. And, and here's, here's one that's sort of about UK politics. Um, it's from Tom Bunting, who um, I think you started your talk this evening by talking about Tony Blair. And, of course, the FT backed Tony Blair, or the Labour Party anyway, in 97. Um, but um, back the Conservatives at the last election, I believe. So, and the question is, you know, the FT has, has been harsh on progressive left-leaning political figures such as Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. Does that opposition stem from the belief that their policies are unrealistic or that they would be, um, you know, ruinous if implemented or both? Um, well, with Jeremy Corbyn, I, I, it's... It's flattering to call him progressive. I mean, he's, he's been pretty well wrong on every important subject in the last 40 years, you know, both abroad. Uh, he's an apologist for um, authoritarian regimes, you know, from Venezuela to, uh, you know, other places. And, you know, I don't have a lot of time for him. Um, Sanders is an important figure, much more important than, um, than, than Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, who, rep who represents a clique. Um, Sanders is a, was a progressive force in the Democratic Party and has had a, an important influence over the economic debate in America. So, yeah, we wouldn't back Sanders. Um, we are a market or, in, you know, pro-market, pro-liberal ideas and economy in its broader sense. Yeah. And how confident do you feel? I mean, we, you, you mentioned quite rightly the, the sort of the, the reverse of globalisation. I mean, when I was talking about globalisation, I was thinking about things like pandemic and climate change, to be honest. Um, but um, there is this sense, obviously, of a kind of retreat of whatever you want to call it, liberalism, neoliberalism, markets, whatever. Um, so do you, do you have much faith in... Uh, you, you ran a whole series of comment pieces about new capitalism you yeah. know do you have much faith in capitalism's ability to sort of reinvent itself um the answer is i do and it does need to adapt i mean to reform in order to preserve to quote macaulay um i think it's challenged now i think it is adapting and you can see the politics particularly coming out of america but i just want to come back very briefly which is relevant to this to tom's question I mean, I think the FT, um, and I don't, it wasn't the whole of the FT, but because there were voices, um, in the, um, you know, at the top who felt that we were, we, we didn't think we were too supportive of austerity. And I think in retrospect, and I write this in the book, I think that's probably right. The British could have borrowed earlier. I mean, it wasn't quite as bad tightening, but the damage to public services was very serious. And I think we could have written more about that and highlighted it. We did do it. And I remember commissioning articles and stuff. But I think we, we probably should have, um, you know, slightly taken a slightly different tack. One of the reasons we didn't was because we were trying to support a coalition government in difficult political circumstances 
with a budget deficit of around 11%. Great. Yeah, really interesting. We, we have run out of time, Lionel, so I'm going to have to let you get back to the delights of um, Sun Valley. Um, obviously, I'm very, a, lo- a lot of thanks to the audience, and uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to all the questions there, but they were, they were very good ones. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thanks very much, Lionel. I hope to see you again. Yeah, yeah all the best. Thanks, Thanks. everybody.